Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. We don't really know exactly which body it is from unless you know, as I was saying if we know that the composition is almost identical for example to the curiosity mission that measured Martian chemical signature so we compare to that and we know that there are similarities and then from that we could then develop an understanding that a sample is coming from that body but most of the meteorite sample we think that they're coming from asteroid within the asteroidal belt yeah so when you when you guys say organic material Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Queenie Chan. Queenie, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me here. So you've got a pretty accomplished background. How do you introduce yourself? Let's see. I would usually start with saying I'm a scientist that breaks rocks apart and grind rocks into tiny powder. And then I would study them into great detail. And those rocks are space rocks. So I study extraterrestrial material. I'm a sample analyst. So some people would then ask me uh, if I've found any little green alien yet no i haven't found any of them so it's just studying rocks and looking for the organic compounds inside of those rocks so postdoctoral fellow at nasa you, you've been all over the place why why did you choose uh, royal holloway at the university of london what, what was attractive about them for you? Have you have you seen the campus? The campus is really nice. <laughs> but yeah. That's not the the, the the first thing that 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 I chose it. Sometimes it come into fate as well. That somehow it just linked the opportunity links up, and then and then here I am. Roy Holloway's got a really nice campus, and it's green, and it's got a team that is starting to build up planetary science at the university too. So my background is in planetary science. So my background matches with what the department is looking for. So uh, then here I am. That's fun. So can we talk about this March 4th article I found? Organic materials essential for life on Earth are found for the first time on the surface of an asteroid. Yeah, it's a, so it's a very, very interesting 
piece of material that we get to study is a tiny particle that got returned by the first mission of JAXA, the uh, Japanese um, space agency, that sent a uh, space mission that went to an asteroid and brought back to Earth from that asteroid some particles for us to study in the laboratory here on Earth with our sophisticated techniques and instruments. So it is a article that based on our study on one particle that got returned amongst the thousands of particles that got returned by the first Hayabusa mission. So it is quite interesting one because that was the first time that we get to confirm there were organic materials observed in this tiny little particle. So when I say tiny, they are really, really, really small. When you look at it, try to look at it with your bare eye, you can maybe barely see it. If I have to put that into a number, um, that is about 15 microns. So what that means is roughly half the diameter of the, of the diameter of a human hair. So it is that small. So what we were doing is we try to get milk as much information as we can from this one particle that got allocated to us. So for you, what what are the implications? With that now having been found, what does this make you think about the future of space research? Think about you know, the business of space and Elon Musk and SpaceX and things like <laughs> this. And what what are the implications of this for you? It's really, I, I always use the word exciting. It's just really exciting, all of these uh, space missions. So usually when you hear about space mission, there is a space apparatus that go to a, another planetary body. It could be a moon, it could be a planet, it could be an asteroid, or it could be a comet. So this particular mission went to an asteroid and brought back sample. And that's different from other missions because most of mission, for example, the Mars 2020 mission, the Perseverance rover is now on the surface of Mars. And that particular rover is not going to fly back. But, but in later stage, some more Martian sample will be brought back by another apparatus back to Earth. So the next couple of years to the next sort of next decade will be uh, will be fruitful years of sample return mission. So what that means is we'll get to study a lot of planetary material back here on Earth with our most advanced technology. So there will be a lot of new information coming up from them. So really exciting area coming up. So depending on what we find, what what kind of decisions could that have? What kind of what kind of uh, implications could you see for things that happen in the future because of it? It's going to tell us a lot about how the solar system formed in the first place. And this is why we as meteoriticists or planetary scientists try to do is to unravel mystery about the formation of the Earth and the formation of our solar system by studying these space rocks. So you would ask them, why cannot we study these material or, or why can we unravel this mystery from studying rocks here on Earth? If we want to study the formation of, of the Earth, why don't we study Earth's rock? Why do we study space rock from another planet? And the reason to that is because of the, you, you could hear about the volcano eruption, about the uh, plate tectonics on the Earth. And when you put a, a piece of rock outside for under the sun for a long time, it will get this integrated into into tiny pieces. And that's because the Earth is a really active planet on the surface. So 
rocks got changed, constantly eroded and weathered all the time. And sometimes oldest rock got much back into the center of the earth by plate tectonics. So it's really difficult to find rocks that are so, so old that we could get to find out the formation of this of the earth and the formation of the solar system. So therefore, we look for uh, rocks from space, which we haven't got as much of weathering processes. And it's still the same rock that was formed at the beginning of our solar system. It, it evolved during the time. And this is one thing that we found out from our paper. It evolved, but uh, we could find a lot of information at the birth of our solar system by studying space rocks. Interesting. You know, on the show, we have we try to have as many different kinds of experts as we can and, and hear, about how, hear about people who succeed in different areas. When you think about the success you've already had in this field, what, what, are, what are some of the secrets? What are some of the tips to somebody who wanted to follow in your footsteps? How do you succeed at what you do? It's very interesting, yes, because when you invited me, then, then I look it up on your, on your website in, in much detail, what your audience are looking for, what they might be interested in. And I see a list of what potential speakers that you're looking for. So on the list here, I'm reading here that you've got entrepreneurs, you've got pro athletes, You've got actors, musicians, comedians, and where I am, where do I fit in this amazing list of people? I guess I'm going to belong to the etc. bit down there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so you've got amazing people here, and and I wonder, so why 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 can I get to get to participate in this amazing interview with you? I guess is a, a bit of similar to the name of that Mars mission currently on on Mars right now, perseverance is how we continue to devote to this career, how we continue to focus and get to the aim of where we went, want to go. So from very early in, in my childhood, I already know that I want to become a scientist. I already know that I, I just like to continue to explore new things. My curiosity needs to be answered. So this is my goal to be a scientist. And I also like to, to teach. So eventually lecturer or in the US is called as assistant or associate professors. In the UK, we call them ourselves lecturers. This 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 role fits perfectly for what, what I wanted to do. So uh, from the beginning, I knew what I wanted to do. Then I went for it. So I wrote my letter to my boss, my, my boss at NASA, that I wanted to work with him because he's published all of these amazing papers that answer a lot of questions that I had. So I wrote to him and asked him for the possibility to, to study and work at NASA with him. So that basically became my first step in my career that after my study in my PhD to get involved in, in, in planetary science research. So I guess it's a lot of perseverance, as I was saying, and also just continue to try to explore possibility, to explore opportunities. I think that's where getting me to here. And another thing that I guess it could be similar to many other people across different fields, no matter whether you're a businessman, entrepreneur, musician, a bit of how we get to the success is a, is a bit of luck too. And of course, sure. people work hard, work so hard to get to where they, 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 they belong. And I would say maybe a majority of that is your hard working, but a bit of that fraction is a bit of luck too. So, so I would have to say I'm very lucky to be here. 
Yeah. It's interesting to me how much perseverance increases luck, though. You know, mm. you think about sticking with it and continuing to do it even when you don't feel like it anymore and and pushing that extra bit when other people don't, how often that puts us in locations where luck can happen, right? Do you, do you yeah. find that or do you see it differently? I find it, no, no, I find, I agree with you. This is, this always happened and, and it's always like a, you know, that, that curve up and down and up and down is it, constantly going up and down and up and down. So at, at some point you thought, yeah, your luck is, is working really well. I'm doing fine in this area. And then suddenly that luck's gone and some hard things coming up and some challenges appears and that puts you into the trough so that that i think could could devastate people especially when they're at the at the, at the peak point of the career of their business and then went to the trough like that so it happens to me quite quite a lot of times actually uh, especially as a academics we always go through you know like different interviews different proposal writing and you always get reject rejection letters and so so that part is quite devastating and you need luck and you need the perseverance to keep on going yeah uh, now before NASA, you you were at your Imperial College London for your PhD, correct? Yes. And then University of Hong Kong before that? That's right, yeah. And is that where you grew up or where did you grow up? I grew up in Hong Kong. So I grew up in Hong Kong. I studied uh, my bachelor degree at um, University of Hong Kong. Then I went to, to London for my PhD. And actually between my PhD and my NASA postdoctoral fellowship, there were some other careers between. And one of them is I get to work at the nature conservation officer, work for the, the agricultural department in Hong Kong. So what I did was I was a, I took, I look after, basically, I look after animals in a uh, conservation park. So I mm. work with vets and, and look at, look after the well-being of those animals. So basically, this is one of my passion that I had in, uh, when I was in childhood too. So scientists, as well as nature conserva uh, conserva conservation. So uh, therefore, after PhD, when I had the chance to return to Hong Kong, I think I'm going to take up this position. And, and then after that, when I fulfilled my, my, my desire to work for a little bit for the, for the nature, then I returned back to, to, to be a researcher. And then I worked for NASA for a couple of years. Oh, that's fun. I, I really like Hong Kong. I've only been a couple of times, but I always tell people it's like New York, except clean. That's how I, that's how I describe <laughs> Hong Kong. Um, what, what kind of advantages do you think, you, like in your career now, what kind of advantages do you think you have because of how you grew up? I think it's probably the being in an international kind of pot. <laughs> so I think in the in Hong Kong, most of the time, I would think it was quite actually quite challenging to be a scientist because as you compare Hong Kong to New York, they, they're both amazing financial center. So a lot of the focus and a lot of the opportunities are given to, to nurture people to become businessmen and very few opportunities are given to become a, a nature scientist. So I would say that part I learned about the press of it is how difficult the situation is. And there are some opportunities that's available. And for example, 
in many universities as well, you'll get the chance to go to another university to go on an exchange program, something like that. So there are opportunities there. So when the opportunities are there, you just grasp it. So I would say that it was quite challenging <laughs> to do nature research in Hong Kong, but that also gives the, 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 the lessons for us to learn to be perseverance. Yeah, it's it's interesting how things that are challenges for us, if we overcome them, end up being advantages later on, right? Like yeah. maybe, you know, other people in your PhD program who didn't have to fight tooth and nail as much as you did, maybe are more likely to get overwhelmed by their PhD or, you know, folks who, who wish they could get into NASA, but aren't taking the initiative to go reach out instead of, you know, maybe just go through the traditional routes, right? And that <laughs> I guess that, that would be very seems like it's been an advantage. <laughs> I guess that if I don't know, because I, I just like science so much. So it's just very hard to believe when there is an opportunity given for a person to, to go to NASA and they won't take it. I just find it really difficult to believe. But I, I assume that when, when yeah, but I agree with what you're saying. When things are coming to your hands so easily, you then have second thoughts. You didn't have that second thought at the beginning. But when you realize, hey, this is maybe something that's quite easy to get, then you start to self-doubt again. So I think, yeah, I think that the part is, is, is quite quite weird. But I think that that is totally right. Yeah. When, you know, when you think about NASA as an organization, what's something, what's something you learned there? What's something that those of us who haven't had a chance to work there might not appreciate about them? I guess is really how professional people are because before working gets work at NASA, I, I could just get to know people through their research works. I could just see the website and sometimes, you know, you hear about that in movies. So you just have all the imagination and uh, fascination of how people and scientists get to work at, at NASA. And, but really when I, when I get to work there, I then realize how, how professional people are, how every one of them like the research so much. And you really feel that they, they dedicate their, their, their life. I think maybe it's a bit too much, but they dedicate their themselves to the research that they are doing. So it is that that really inspired me a lot. And one of the inspiration that I got is from, from people there, from people who are working as my colleague at NASA Johnson Space Center. So yeah, this is one of the things that I, I admire a lot and I learned a lot through my postdoctoral fellowship. You know, it's it's fun. I get to meet a lot of people and, and I obviously get to meet a lot of people on this show as well. It's interesting for me to be able to meet people who are who are so deep into what they do it is almost kind of contagious, like the, the kind of like excitement or their passion or their their intensity for it. You know, I, I feel like I'm kind of like a, the guy who always wants to achieve more. I'm like the maximizer who's always trying mm -hmm. to go to the top. Right. And then mm -hmm. I get to meet these people who've gone like who've gone so deep in what they've done. It makes me feel like, well, there's a whole level. There's a whole other level I didn't even know about, you know, and mm -hmm. it makes me think like, am I am I pursuing my path with the intensity <laughs> that they are? You know, and a lot of times the answer is no, but it's like inspiring to up my game, you know? Yeah, yeah. That that's another thing quite amazing as well, that how how deep and how focused people get 
become when they after they become a, a researcher and a specialist in an area because you go deeper and deeper into that specific topic i think it goes when we get to i think is is again across different different fields as well not just in science but in other fields as well art other fields when we get to phd level we sort of focus a lot in one particular subject your topic it just focuses so much on that topic so you you just uh, endeavor so much into that particular topic and after a while uh, you then become so focused that you kind of forget about other things around you <laughs> so that is that point that that we started to realize that hey it's good but but it's also bad at the same time because you're just so focused on one matter but you sort of omit the other things so and then after after PhD, then when we start to get to put stock and when you see other people, like what I say, uh, scientists working at NASA and similar to other other institution and other groups and other research group, other research institution, universities as well, is that people start to open up again after they got into the field. So they get to start to see what other people do and they compare their research to what other people do and they start to have other innovation idea. And so the field and the horizon start to open up again. So it's really interesting how we started up when we learn, say, in primary school and secondary school, that you learn in a more broader terms, you get to see different fields, and then you chose your subject, you get to university, you chose your subject, and you get to PhD, you narrow down even further, further and then you open up wide again. So that, that's, that funnel shape is quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I think for me, you know, I, I'm like, I'm pretty hyper-focused on a few things. Like I'm, I'm really nerdy about applying Warren Buffett's principles of investing to real estate, you know, <laughs> and there's, there's a few subjects I'm like extra nerdy about, right? But it's <laughs> funny how experts in completely unrelated fields end up influencing me, you know, for what I'm working on. Like, have you heard of this thing in the States called the Spartan race? Does that ring a bell? It, Have you heard of this? It, it just break. The, the line just break a little bit when you mentioned that. What, what oh, do you say again? It's called the, the Spartan race. Spartan race. No, no, I haven't heard of it. What okay. it is it? So it's, it's this like, it's kind of like CrossFit people. It's like very endurance based. And so you run, but there's like all these things you have to jump over, or crawl through the mud, or it's it's really intense. Okay. Right, right, right. But it's very successful. I think they do like $160 million a year just selling race tickets to go oh, run, wow. run around in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy who started it, his name's Joe DeSena, and I read his books, mm -hmm. watched his YouTube videos. He's a super intense guy. He's, he's really passionate about helping people become healthier. But right. one of the most influential things was not actually on the interview mm -hmm. when I had him on this show. It was... Be, it was when he was late for the interview and he was telling me and the co-host, this guy, Jay Davis, that mm -hmm. we were doing the interview together. And he said, oh yeah, it's such a pain, you know, cause I'm, I'm running around all the time and I've, I've got my suit, I've got my, you know, my briefcase and my phone and all stuff and my kettlebell with me. And I'm trying to get in and out of these meetings in New York. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean when I say kettlebell, like those workout, those no. workout weights with the, the handle, right? And we're like, what do you mean your kettlebell? And he's like, well, it's like my personal commitment. I carry around, and I want to say it's like 40 pounds. I carry around this big kettlebell everywhere I go. And, and it just like helps me up my game. And I'm just living my, I'm just living our brand more. And, and I just, you know, it, it helps me push myself even when I'm not in the gym. 
Mm-hmm. And what was so interesting about it is like, nobody is watching. Nobody, he's not on TV at this point. Nobody is checking if he's carrying around this 40 pound kettlebell as he's going to business meetings, right? <laughs> but it's just like his internal commitment. Mm-hmm. It just showed up in a way that I was completely unexpected for me. Of like, you know, most people are trying to avoid pain. They're trying to avoid, like, they'll go to the gym and work out and then they want to relax. No, he's carrying his 40 pound kettlebell all the time with him. Yeah, even in secret, uh, right? (laughs) Yeah, even in secret. And I think that was probably more influential to find Mm -hmm. out how deeply he lived it, even in secret. You know, right. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. But. Yeah, yeah. I've got a similar bit of thing that, that I would like to share with you about what we do in the in the lab as well as extraterrestrial sample analyst. And as I was saying at the beginning, I'm an uh, analyst and I look at organic material and I look at organic material that comes from space. So not from myself. So I don't want to sneeze at the sample. I don't want to shed my, my hair in the sample because I want it pristine. I want it clean. I want just the original state of what's Mm -hmm. contained in the sample. So one thing that we need to be very careful in the lab is not to contaminate it. So as I was saying, I was trying not to shed my hair. So (laughs) I would put a like a little net that that cover up all my hair and I would never wear makeup. So that's a perfect excuse of not wearing makeup, of not doing anything like that in the lab, is try to eliminate any sort of powder, any sort of thing that would fall into the sample. Another thing that we do is we would wear gloves and we try not even to touch the sample, even with the gloves, uh, because the glove is made up of some organic material sometimes. So that, even if a touch of that glove onto the sample, you could contaminate it with terrestrial material. So... After that, I become so paranoid to, as to the cleanliness. So it becomes one of my habits already that I have to be neat and tidy and, and, and not to touch anything with my bare hands sometimes. So, so it becomes a habit already. So it's kind of similar to that, to, to, the, to the bell thing that you carry. Even people are not looking. And for myself, even people are not looking, even if it's not necessary sometimes that I have to keep things clean. It's just, it's just become a habit of myself that I have to keep it keep things that way. So yeah, so one of my one of the things that I got trained by my own research is to become clean and not to do make. Can you talk about the precision of your work, like having to pick up samples with needles and just like how how intense that is? It is it is crazy. So I mentioned to you about the particle that we got allocated by JAX of the first Hayabusa mission. It is a particle that small, a, a fraction of a human hair that small, right? So we cannot pick it up with our hand, of course, and we cannot even pick it up with a twister that you would thought maybe the most precision tool that you would get inside of a lab is maybe the sharp end of a twister that maybe you could pick up the the, the sample with that. But no, we cannot even pick the sample up with that first just because by the little bit of squeeze between the, you know, the end of the twister, you could possibly crush the sample into two parts and that's making it even more difficult to pick up. Second is sometimes it's just so small that it, it just won't be successfully picked up by by even the twister. So what we needed to do in the lab is to use a needle to pick that particle up 
just with the static electric. So what we did was we put the uh, sample under the microscope and next to the sample, with next to the microscope, we've got this, what we call the micro manipulator. At the end of it, it's a tiny, like a really sharp needle. And we will look under the microscope, look and, and uh, slowly lower the needle so that it just barely touched that particle. And that particle was just boop, and stuck to the needle by static electric. And at that point, basically, I definitely could not sneeze. So I have to maintain a good health <laughs> and definitely would try to control myself not to breathe too much. Definitely not to talk, not to laugh. So that is very scary. And and I work in a lab that we call a clean lab. So inside of the lab is positive air pressure because uh, when you open the lab door, the air pressure will blow things outside of the lab. So nothing outside will come into the lab. So nothing outside terrestrial contamination will go into the lab that way. So it's really scary if people get to open that door and and then you will sense the airflow and that airflow could even blow that little particle away. So I just hope that nothing like that would happen to me. And, and then if that happened to me, I don't know what I would do. Should I yell at the people? Should I, should I just say, stop doing? I shouldn't say anything because if I said anything, I would blow the particle away. So it is just very challenging how, how we even just manage to pick up the particle. That's even before we do any analysis with it. And so, and then what, what we did afterwards was we just put the needle back onto another surface and then use another static electric attraction between that new surface and, and the needle to drop that particle onto the surface, which we want it to land on. So, so it's just really challenging just by talking about how we pick the sample up. So it's just really lovely to, to have this opportunity to share with you all one part, one tiny part of our analysis. And I think to me, it's very challenging and maybe quite an interesting story to you all too. Yeah. So what's the equipment called? Like, what was the final piece of equipment when you guys realized, hey, this is the, you know, this is the kind of organic material that's essential for life on Earth? What's that, what's that last piece of equipment that you used when you found that out? That is called a nano sims. So nano stand for the, the, the nano size. So at the nano scale, we managed to do isotopic analysis of the sample. Because we use the isotopic signature to tell whether something is extraterrestrial and something terrestrial because they have different numbers, they have different numerical values. So when we study the sample for the isotopic signature, we need a sample analytical machine that gives us the resolution that's able to tell tiny little component inside of that tiny little particles. And from that, we were able to tell that this is definitely not a shed skin or shed powder from my face. It's definitely some things coming from the asteroid itself. So that is something extremely exciting when we found out. No kidding. Is there any kind of estimate, you know, how far away this planet or where, you know, wherever this organic material came from, wherever this asteroid came from, is there any way to estimate how far away that is? Yeah, so mostly when we talk about meteorite sample, 
mostly they come from the asteroid belt that sits between Earth and Mars. So it's major belts that contain a lot of asteroidal material. And asteroid is so interesting to us because we think that asteroids are the precursor of the planet. So asteroids come together and cluster together and they get bigger and bigger and eventually they get so big that they become a planet. So this is why one thing that we find when we study asteroids is because we think that they are the kind of the prototype of planets and we look at the formation of the solar system and planets so we study them. So most of the meteorites come from the asteroidal belt and some of the meteorites we know that is coming from a planet like Mars itself. So we've got Martian meteorites, we've got moon meteorite as well. So we know that a piece of uh, rock that we find on Earth is coming from moon. And we don't just say that by, you know, just comparing just the mineralogy. We did a lot of, again, the chemical comparison, the isotopic comparison of different components inside of the rock to tell where they come from. So we need a lot of data analysis here on Earth, and we need a lot of space mission that goes to this planet and this outer, this other solar system bodies to look for their chemical signature and compare to what we see here on Earth. So we know where they come from because of that. So this meteorite, however, this particle that we study, we know that is coming from asteroid Itokawa because we've got a space mission that went all the way to it to pick sample from that asteroid back to Earth. So we definitely know that it's coming from, from asteroid Itokawa. And uh, but some meteorites, some samples, extraterrestrial sample that we get to study on Earth are meteorites. And those meteorites, we don't really know exactly which body it is from unless you know, as I was saying, if we know that the composition is almost identical, for example, to the Curiosity mission that measured Martian chemical signatures, so we compare to that and we know that there are similarities. And then from that, we could then develop an understanding that a sample is coming from that body. But most of the meteorite sample, we think that they're coming from asteroid within the asteroidal belt. Yeah. So when you when you guys say organic material, mm-hmm. what it what does that mean, maybe in more plain English? It is um, anything that is composed of carbon, the, the element that we think uh, we call the bio, biological element. So the similar element that make up of biology, mate, biological material on Earth, for example, the element the carbon, element hydrogen, element oxygen. So these elements are the organic element with a quotation. So all these organic material are made up of these elements. So sometimes they are not necessarily related to life. So we've got organic material that is completely not related to life, but it's composed of the similar components. So then it's really interesting to study them as well, because they could make up uh, the raw precursor that made into the, the prototype of cell, for example, that made into cell and that evolved into the what we know as life on Earth. So sometimes when we talk about organic material on meteorites, sometimes it's confusing because the word organic seems to relate to life. In some sense, yes, it is, but not 
every case is related to life. I give you an example. We've got organic material that are what we call the organic solids. So you extract them from the from the meat, right? And they are quite blackish in color. And these materials are not related to life, but they are just composed of carbon, hydrogen, you know, a cross linkage of this material. So then they are the majority of organic material found on meteorites. So it's also very interesting to study them. So this is a, a, a good overview of uh, what organic material means, perhaps. Yeah. So, well, because obviously life on other planets is not possible if the building blocks of life are not on that planet. Not there. Right? Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is that a dumbed down way to say it? <laughs> is that accurate? <laughs> in, in proper English. Well, I'm interested when you think about how much interest there is in the business of space, whether it's asteroid mining or space travel or space tourism, things like this, the fact that there, you know, the fact that there are these other building blocks, how could that, how could that help the business of space? What do you think? Building blocks of people do mine space, do mine other planetary bodies for, for different elements. I haven't heard about people looking at uh, mining organic material but we've been doing that in on Earth so much that, for example, one type of organic material that we do mine on Earth is petroleum. We, we mine that yeah. a lot, coal. So they're all hydrogen, carbon material. So we, I think if people goes to an asteroid and mined them and replaced the petroleum, like support our petroleum supply, that would be a crazy idea. The reason why I say that is quite a crazy idea is because organic material is actually not a lot in, in, in our solar system. When we, when we study organic material in meteorites, they only come in a fraction of all meteorite sample we get to study. The majority of meteorites is quite poor in organic material. It's got just a few of weight percent. It's just a tiny portion of that is uh, organic material. On Earth, you will you will find somewhere which locates and, and concentrate organic material. So there is a reason why you could pump and, and get the and get, for example, petroleum petroleum out. But in in, in meteorite, for example, even in the most carbon-rich meteorite, is you have to really concentrate the meteorite down to to look at those tiny little proportion of material. So organic material. So so that part is quite challenging, I would say. Sure, sure. You know, I know the a lot of like the asteroid mining, like you know, the billionaire Naveen Jain talks about the plentifulness of of certain like precious metals. I want to say platinum mm. or some other ones that are that are in great supply on certain asteroids. Am I getting that right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's definitely a business going on about mining um, mining precious material metals out of other asteroids. So yeah, it's, it's an ongoing business. But I'm not an ex- expert in that. So I would, I would not say too much about that <laughs> unless people sure. are going to <laughs> grill me about that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, listen, congratulations on this big discovery. What What's next? What are you pursuing next? What are some of your goals? 
So the next thing is going to be extremely exciting because as I was saying, we've got a few missions that is going to return more samples from our solar system back to Earth. And the the the, the mission that provide the sample that we study and get the paper published, it was the first Hayabusa mission that that, that was a, a while ago. And the the second Hayabusa mission has just returned to Earth, and it just returned to Earth and brought back sample, this time from a carbon-rich asteroid. So the previous one, which I analyzed, was coming from a carbon-poor, supposed to be not rich in organic type of asteroid. But this time, the second Hayabusa mission will get to have more sample, not just tiny little particles, but we've got more sample. Definitely, you could see them in the sample container. And so we've got that much sample, Get to we get to study them in the lab here on Earth. And we'll get to start doing so in more detail in this summer. So in just a, a couple of weeks or, or months, we'll get to study the sample in great detail. So this is what my immediately plan for my next couple of months is, is to get to study the these this exciting new samples. And then we've got more mission coming back. We've got the OSIRIS-REx mission of NASA, also going to a carbon-rich asteroid and bringing back sample back. And we've also got a mission uh, planned to go to a moon of Mars, the Phobos moons, and also planning to bring sample back from Phobos back to Earth. So we've got a lot of this new exciting mission, which we call the sample return mission, bringing, bringing all the new jobs to us <laughs> as scientists. So it's going to be definitely a very exciting upcoming years for, for us. So the idea of there being organic material like this and, and being more of it, does it support the idea that there could be other planets with life because their building blocks are there? Or what, how um, would you, what would be your thoughts about that? Yeah, so this is the reason why we do this, right? We wanted to, we wanted to, we've got two different motives, we would say, in terms of organic material. First, we, want, we wanted to find if there is any sign of life, no matter whether it is in the past or present life, we want to find it. So far, so many missions been to different solar system bodies. We haven't found sign of life. We've found organic material. On, on comets, for example, we found organic materials, simple organic precursors, but we have not found life because those those information doesn't tell you that there is life. It's just some precursor was there for life to possibly form from this bunch of organic material. So the life finding thing is still ongoing. And this is one, one target, one, one purpose of space mission. And the other purpose is not, not looking into finding life itself, but what happened before that. So what 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 kind of organic material were there before life was formed? So we're looking at that group of precursor and how that group of precursor become what they are. So it's a series of, you could say, a biochemical reaction or biochemical evolution that evolves from very simple, very simple organic material to more complex material to even more complex material that might be related to life, but it doesn't equal to life. 
and then spark something happens and then that becomes life so and different scientists working at different stages so some scientists working at to try to find what that spark is so what what kind of equation what kind of chemical pathway could lead to what we call the something that we recognize to be life. But what my team and my interest is the 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 far far end of that side, the precursor material. What were the precursor material and what was there at the birth of our solar system for anything to have happened? So, so that that is why the other, so I was saying there was one group of people trying to look for signs of present or past life, the other group trying to look at, uh, for example, the precursor material that leads to the, the origin of life. So, so these are quite interesting and would be the, the upcoming focus on quite a few of missions because we now have the technology that is sensitive enough to detect tiny little abundance of organic material in the samples, much more than what we had in decades back. So now we are at the right time to study this in great detail with the sensitivity, with the with the specification to study the, the origin of life in a in a more focused way. Very fun. Well listen, I'm I'm glad you took the time to come on the show. I've I've learned a lot. <laughs> I'm glad I, I, I could hear, I could be here talk to you about this. I, I reckon this is something that's very different from, from uh, what, what you've been uh, talking about through, through, through the podcast so far. I hope this is not too, too, too boring to people because no, no, um, I think this is completely different, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's fun, but, but I feel like, People who are pursuing excellence in any field have something to teach us. You know, recently we had a scientist who's also a doctor at one of the universities in London who mm. basically has figured out some new ways that we might be able to repair like livers that have to be transplanted. A lot of times they can't end up using the liver because there was a problem they didn't know about. And they've like invented new ways that that now we'll be able to save more like if they can, if they can just even use all of the liver transplants that are donated, they can save more lives. And it's potentially leading to be able to fix some livers by injecting new cells into the body and never even having to do the transplant in the first place. And mm -hmm. even though like my primary interest in life is maybe a little more business focused, it's fascinating for me to, to hear the stories of innovation and how they did it. And he's this like very, very friendly Greek guy. Uh, he's so fun. Like you can just tell he'd be a party to hang out with, but it was just, it's a fun interview and you hear like this went to that and this went to that. And you hear about like, for me, it was fun to hear about like, n not just what he's doing, but also his personal path of, of making it from Greece to one of the top universities in the world to study it. And, and so many of us are trying to achieve things in life often in completely unrelated stories, we get innovation ideas for our field, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm really glad to share with you what my expertise is. And I hope that the little story about, you know, tiny little particles and got picked up by the needle and tiny little particle that got returned by space mission. It is something that is that is like you could 
you, you could hear about that maybe from a movie. <laughs> and not a lot of times we could really get to have a situation like this, a, con a, a, a condition like this, that I could share so much about what the details that we do. So I hope that this could be something new that you have heard and it could bring some extraterrestrial <laughs> materials, extraterrestrial <laughs> stuff or analysts interesting to the audience. Yeah. You know, the other thing for me too is it just helps me realize like I think sometimes we have had so much technological advances and, you know, we've mapped mm. pretty much everything on earth. Sometimes it can feel like some of the big adventures are over, you know? Mm. And so stuff like this, it's, I don't know, it is kind of exciting to me to realize like how much more there is to be discovered, how like really, you know, same thing with medical breakthroughs, same thing with, with, you know, quantum computing or stuff that's, that's levels above what we used to think was possible it kind of makes it more exciting to live life when when you feel like everything hasn't been done you know? Yeah, it is something that I found is very similar in in terms of, for example, getting patent. When, when you always have, sometimes you would think about something, maybe you dream about something that you thought, yeah, maybe that's a fantastic new idea. Then you search for it, you wanted to find a patent for it, and then it's been patent. So somebody else has already been, been looking into this uh, already. It's kind of similar sometimes in the field of science too, that you thought that, hey, this, this could be something new that we could do with this meteorite that, that we definitely should do it and then you look it up on the on the history of how what people has been doing in the past and 20 years ago or 40 years ago people has already got this idea and has been doing it so sometimes <laughs> it's just a bit hard to find you know what 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 more can we do and what what's the gap that we need to fill in but i'm sure that there's a lot a lot of those gaps to fill in we, we just need to constantly think about that and just keep exploring. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, thanks again for doing this. <laughs> Thank you for having me here again. Bye-bye. Bye now.